Welcome to Hunger for Wholeness. In today's episode, we continue our discussion with Marjorie Wollacott. Ilya begins our conversation by lamenting the technological challenges posed to the modern brain. One other challenge here that I think we have to take note of is that the importance of meditation and deepening our awareness of our own beingness is really up against the dominant wall of technology and the corporatization of technology in such a way that our whole culture is so technology-wired that while we are trying to slow down and access these deeper levels, in our operative daily lives, we're on speed trains. You know, it's faster, more efficient. How much data can you get? How much information can you stuff into your little brain? So I feel sorry for the poor human brain that on one hand is being, you know, squished with all this information. On the other hand, it's like desperate to slow down, which sort of this tension between the cultural technological addiction and the desire for deeper living for, in a sense, being fully human. In some ways, the conflict opens a way for transhumanism to say, don't worry, we'll just download your brain. You'll have access to more consciousness than you could ever have imagined. And you'll be good to go in a new medium. So don't worry about all this stuff. I don't know how we can shift our paradigms sufficiently that we can slow down this rate of technological progress before we find ourselves in a very dystopic and very strange society. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I do. And I, you know, here's the interesting thing for me. It's like, I, first of all, should say that even though my parents got a television set, showing how old I was when I was like about seven or eight years of age, I never was interested in television. And I'm somewhat that way with radio as well. For whatever the reasons, I've always liked reading and sort of a quieter um, environment, interacting with nature. So that I came into the world that way. But when I even watched before this incredible expansion of technology, just to be says, I would go for a walk with my husband in the neighborhood in Eugene, and I would look in with front windows and everybody's TV was on. And they, all evening long, they were in a virtual reality, totally absorbed in a virtual reality. And all that's happening is the virtual reality has expanded to take in sometimes you know, almost every waking moment of our day. And to me, that is, as you say, the scary thing. It's like, really? Do you think that virtual reality is more interesting than a real reality? <laughs> so I'm intrigued by that. And I guess here's one antidote for it. And by antidote, I'm only meaning that the more of us that give ourselves to the practice of stilling the mind and being in the present moment with ourselves and the universe and people around us, the more I believe that that energy of the light of consciousness that we then incorporate and digest and assimilate into ourselves radiates outward to other people and other beings, and I think they can begin to feel it. And when you think about the great beings of the world, whether they were Jesus or some of these other saints we've heard about, including Teresa of Avila, et cetera, people in their presence felt a difference. Their consciousness changed. And I truly believe there is a transmissive nature to higher awareness that radiates outward to those around us. And so Part of the hope is that the more we each do it, just by being with others, they will feel that and they will want to find that for themselves. I love that, actually. I think, you know, what you're talking about is personal transformation has a field effect. Yeah. You know, that the personally transformed person transforms other persons simply by their presence, by their sheer energetic presence. Yeah. 
And I think that's really true. I do. I am deeply concerned that the human brain is being tossed and turned about, you know, wither and thither because neuroplasticity is a really interesting concept. And so I do think the addiction to virtual reality, because we want to be something other, right? We don't want to really be what we are. Uh, And that's part of our problem is it's not a problem. It's our challenge. Do we want to be human? I'm not sure. But virtual reality holds out for us this whole spectrum of be whatever you want to be, you know, in cyberspace, it's just an infinite field of imagination. So, you know, things like attention, compassion, the ability to relate itself. I think these qualities are being somewhat flattened by our culture of technology. Here's a question that I keep struggling with related to that, because there's a moment that I have despair because of all of the transhumanism, et cetera, all of that. And then I look at the young people of the world And a lot of these people who are saying, I'm concerned about the environment. I'm the one that's going to inherit the environment that you guys are really making a mess of. And I want to do something else. And so when I talk to a lot of the young people, they are interested in changing things and they have a hunger for wholeness, as you talk about. They really do. And they see that right now we're in a mess. And so I guess part of my hope is that in spite of all the technology that they also are using a lot of, there's also this other part of them that wants to transcend that and find that place where we really are connecting with our environment, connecting with our world. And so as we talk about with Teilhard de Chardin and others, I think there is this yearning for wholeness, this yearning of consciousness as the individual point of consciousness as, as us for getting back to the recognition of who we are. And it's going to go through a lot of challenges, probably a lot of suffering and pain as we go through the blind alleys. But I have this, what is the word, this strong hope and belief that we are on this evolutionary expansion phase and eventually we're going to get there. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, Yes, but I feel we will get there. I do think you're right. I think younger generations are more naturally wired mm-hmm. for community, uh, for collective concerns. There's a deep concern for the earth, certainly because the future seems unpredictable. Are, is, is this a sustainable earth or not? And, you know, a greater care for the poor, for justice is, is a huge thing. And I do think one of the positives of the internet, it allows shared information and therefore shared concerns to surface. So there's pluses and minuses. I'm just thinking of my undergraduate class who has their computers open, you know. So they're looking at a computer and they're sort of in class, they're sort of semi-bodied, you know, they're half in class and half on the computer. And so it's funny, but I do think, you know, here, here's my shorthand, I'll turn over to Robert soon. I've wondered if we just have a revolution, not so much of the person, what if you were just to eradicate the systems we have? In other words, I think our institutional religions, our institutional university systems, these are all systems that militate against deep relationality, even though they have a lot of conferences on this stuff, a lot of discussion. But it's really about hyper-specialization and the hyper-salvation, you know, like, will I be saved, you know, and does God love me, you know? And so what if we just kind of, for all the positive, and I do have hope as well, I do think we will face a great suffering before we can resurrect into a new collective. Mm-hmm of shared planetary life. We have the capacity for it. We are simply now, we have built such a complex world that is now out of our control, quite honestly, in my view, that we can't even make, we're trying to make sense of it as much as we can. 
And I do think a good starting point is precisely as you, you know, now are teaching and advocating to focus our minds and to come into the deeper realities of our own conscious being life. Um, but it's going to be quite a challenge up ahead. And I want to address your issue about the students, because, of course, I taught a lot of undergraduates it were exactly the same way. And my frustration was that when I was teaching a general education class, that was the worst because they didn't really want to be there. <laughs> they were there because this was a requirement that they needed to satisfy. And therefore, their computer was equally interesting to me as far as they were concerned. But when I finally got to the upper division classes where they chose to be there, and then it was like, okay, you guys, close your computers because now we're going to talk about things and we're going to have a conversation. I then could typically get them to do that. And so I had the best time teaching an, a class in alternative and complementary medicine, which I talk about in my book. And, and that's when I have pre-med measures. They believe that materialism is the lens that should be the correct one on the world. And I say, okay, we're going to do a study for each of you where you're going to write papers on whether these alternative forms of medicine like Reiki energy healing or acupuncture are efficacious or they are not. And you're going to go to PubMed, our national database, and you're going to look and you're going to say, what's the evidence for and against? And that got them interested. And typically they shifted from being totally materialist to somewhat post-materialist saying, now I want to go to maybe a, an acupuncture school in addition to my medical school or something of that sort. So they began to see the advantages of both sides of the medical community. And to me, that was what we need to have at our universities. It's like, I wish we didn't have general education courses because kids don't want to be there. But once we get their interest, then I think they can really begin to learn. And again, there's the curiosity, though. I think that's absolutely right. But if you want to know you will go in that direction of, you know, seeking greater knowledge. And quite honestly, I can totally vouch for alternative medicine because I had a head injury two years ago and I was a strict, you know, medicine type, materialist medicine type person. So the thought of going to anything else was just completely out of my, you know, worldview until every MD said, I don't see anything wrong with you, you know, and I'm like, there's something definitely wrong. So I wound up, you know, going to an osteopath and then eventually to cranial sacral therapy that actually was the healing of the whole thing. So, you know, one thing about the Western mind and the Western person is we become lodged into categorical thinking that this is it, like this is the truth. And we argue vehemently for these positions when I think a deeply relational metaphysics, in other words, a metaphysics that has the openness of deep relationality itself. It just allows the standing back because the relationship is primary. So it's never about the, you know, ontology of what, you know, like this is my view and I think medicine is absolutely right and everything else is wrong. It's like, oh, like it's the openness. What can we learn from? Oh, wow, that's so interesting. You know, there are other ways to look at the neuron or the head or the brain <laughs> or whatever it is that we're talking about, you know. And so we, we've cut ourselves off at the knees, basically, you know, and we claim to, to know so much when I think sometimes we know just a, just a little bit, you know, enough to get by. And I want to add to what Robert was saying about Ian McGilchrist and the divided brain, because to me, that's part of what you're talking about, Ilya. It's the idea that with our scientific worldview that has been going on since the age of enlightenment, we call it, where we are dealing with 
taking the whole world apart and dissecting it into little pieces and looking at it linearly, et cetera, which is exactly how I was trained as a neuroscientist. And it was like the way I came into the world that was very comfortable for me. And then ignoring the other side of my brain, which was the holistic part that saw things as a whole. I mean, to me, what happened with meditation is I began shifting back to seeing that both are important. And I think that's the key issue. It's like, if you're only holistic, that's not going to work either because we have to be in a world where we deal with linear thinking and those thought processes. But how do we get our young people and ourselves back to dividing equally the two halves of the brain in the way we process the world? So that that's uh, my key. Yeah, that's exactly right, Marjorie. So the word I use is contextualization. Like, you know, the, these processes, these mechanisms are contextualized within larger processes and mechanisms, you know, so that brain is like a more like a symphony orchestra than an industrial machine area. Well, can I mention there's one anecdote about that that I, maybe you or Robert can appreciate, and that is that, so because I'm such a scientist and so left-brained, and I can argue very, very well linearly about any particular point in our relationship, and he is an artist and literature person, and so he comes much more from the holistic point of view, and it used to be that I would think I was always winning the arguments because of my linear thought process, and suddenly I saw that I was ignoring the whole other half of the world, which is holistic thinking, which my husband wasn't really using, and so it was a humbling experience to finally get that my linear way of thinking wasn't the best way, it was only one way of thinking. Regardless of how quickly we progress scientifically or technologically, the relationship among our brains, bodies, and the universe remains mysterious and complex. Next, I ask Marjorie how we can empower younger generations to pursue these deep, post-material questions in the face of institutional resistance. And finally, Marjorie tells us how post-materialist science can aid in our efforts of social justice and the bettering of end-of-life care. Well, I really do think that post-materialism will play a huge role in taking us into a future that brings about new and deep structures of relatedness. My question would be, given that it's certainly not even close to being the predominant opinion, not only in scientific circles, but in the academy itself, how do we encourage young people who are our future to go in that direction when a job may not be, an opportunity for a job might not be guaranteed, obviously, or they may fear losing their job because it's not a predominant opinion in the field. Yeah. So I totally agree with you. And what I always have talked to students about when they come to me and they say, well, look, you're down working on consciousness. How can I do that? And I say, look, if you're in the neuroscience world, you need to have one aspect of research, which is grounded in what the academy will accept. that is more along the materialist line of things. And then you have another branch of research that is post-materialist and you make sure that you have both so that you can get tenure within an academy that that really um, values that way of thinking, the um, one side of the brain, and then go ahead and do the other part um, in addition. And that's what I did in my own laboratory. I waited till I had tenure, and then I began adding in these other 
experiments in my laboratory. And it allowed me then to also include students in my laboratory that were interested in post-materialist alternative forms of medicine thinking and do those things along with the others. So somehow I think we can hopefully get those students. And I think there are more and more of them. I think one thing I want to say is though it appears to be a catastrophe right now in terms of academia and science. In fact, there are more and more people that I think are trying to bridge very carefully this science and what I would call post-materialism perspective. And again, I'm talking about Richard Davidson and people like Sarah Lazar, who's at Harvard University. There are a number of people around the country and the world that are studying meditation and plasticity of the brain through the materialistic worldview, meaning through looking at functional magnetic resonance imaging and EEG and showing the shifts. And there are more and more of those people now that have tenure at universities and medical schools around the country and in Europe as well. And those people are then giving a place for the young people to study in that environment as well. And then I think they're opening up the crack so that more of this will happen in the future. So I don't think it's as dreadful as it may sound. I also want to mention there's a man named Daniel Ingram in the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium that he has started that is working with young people in the sciences and the clinical sciences around the country and the world to find a way of neutralizing phenomena like meditation and psychedelics and near-death experiences so that clinicians accept them as a neutral phenomenon. This happens to people and we can interpret them any way we want, but it doesn't matter how we interpret them. They are a positive influence on people. And so he has a large organization now as more and more young people are joining. So there's an example of the young people saying, hey, this is how I want to approach these things. I want to be in a medical setting, but I want it not to be, this is bad and this is good. So I think that, again, there's hope. Do you think this kind of post-material philosophy and post-material existence could eventually resolve some of our our cultural and a deep cultural divides in terms of race and gender, where, you know, these issues are still so highly contentious and polarized and, you know, oppositional. I mean, where do you think or how do you think a post-materialist stance could could contribute? And you know, when we think about that, I mean, you and Robert and I all know that once you have that understanding that we're all interconnected, the color of your skin, the gender that you have, none of that matters anymore. The culture you're from, none of that matters anymore. And you see that person out of like the connection in your heart, the love, the compassion that um, we're all living beings. Not, not just that we're human beings because we feel it toward cats and dogs and elephants. And it's, it's like we, we feel that. So the issue for me is that if we only could open up the heart. And that's where I think some people think, well, we with psychedelics, if you could only give microdoses and open up the heart, then maybe people could see that someone from another culture really is at essence exactly the same as them. Saying that, I, I realized that we all still have an ego and that ego thinks about itself and its, and its family first. And I think it's the paradox of human life. And I think it's the paradox that we all decided to come into, which is, okay, in order to live in a three-dimensional time-space reality, the egoic narrative is necessary for survival. If I didn't have that, then I would probably be dead 
within, you know, hours or days or months as a human being. And I need to also have the interconnectedness. And so that balance, how do we keep that balance so that we feel the love and the joy? And I think the issue that the three of us know is that you suffer when you only think about the ego in yourself. And what we're asking ourselves to do is to let go of our suffering and experience the joy of our interconnection. I would totally agree with that, Marjorie. I mean, I do think that that deeper level is so fundamentally important. And yet, you know, as I listen to some of the discussions today on, uh, especially coming out of Black theology and and the tremendous suffering that Black people have endured and continue to, and the the way that there's still this, honestly, there's there's a racial divide where, you know, there's white privilege and there's a sense of white superiority over Blacks. And, you know, while we can say that consciousness is a binding element and awareness of belonging, I think of Thomas Nagel's famous article, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And he says, we, we can never know because we will never have the consciousness of a bat. And I guess that's one of the questions I have. If indeed, while consciousness is a fundamental, if I can use the word substrate, you know, the primacy of matter itself, yet there is a particular, every person has a consciousness and, and therefore a feeling and awareness of this particular personhood. Yep. And, you know, whether it's Black theology or gender, people who are transgender, for example, or who are of one gender or another, and they feel themselves to be this way or that way. And how do we allow for the particularity of consciousness and at the same time open up to the deep relatedness of post-materialism? You know, that we are indeed part of a unified whole. But tell me this, because one of the arguments against it is that it flattens out uh, the particularity of suffering. And I don't think that that's what's going on at all, you know, but I think we need to frame it in such a way that Every person who suffers and has suffered because of race or gender or their particular personhood, we have to first recognize that. And I think that's part of our own coming home to ourselves, so to speak, and the opening of the heart is to know when we are part of suffering as well as being part of a whole. You know, that we have to be aware that our actions, whether implicit or explicit, have contributed to the deep suffering and fragmentation of our time. And yet at the same time, I think you're right, keeping that openness, right, through meditation to that uh, deeper level of wholeness of which we are all a part. My remaining question, really to give Marjorie the last word is, uh, what are you working on right now that you would like to convey to the listeners? Well, so interestingly, one of the things I'm working on is end-of-life transitions because, again, from the materialist perspective, the end of life is the end of everything. And therefore, as we know, in the medical world, we try to keep the heart beating as long as we can because that means that we're still alive. And then, poof, we're gone. And what I'm trying to work with with other scientists is to look at that end-of-life transition as a way of allowing people who are going through that process to really experience it as a very sacred event of moving from one particular experience of of reality to another one that is no longer embodied, but just as real. 
and to allow the people that are left behind to experience that as well. So we're working on understanding the phenomena from both sides of the perspectives, from the, the, what the body is doing and what the spirit and soul and consciousness are doing as it goes through that transition process. And to me, that's a beautiful way of helping alleviate suffering in our society. And Now, Margie, when you say poof, do you mean consciousness goes as well? or Yes, that's what I meant by the medical materialist point of view says that basically... And so what I'm saying is that if we can shift that and change the medical model of it so that they can see that, in fact, consciousness does survive and it's just a transition to a different state, oh. the fear would be gone in the medical community and in the family and perhaps in the person themselves. So we don't need reverse cellular aging, you know, reverse. <laughs> Basically, we have to, in a sense, shift our understanding that we do live on, our conscious lives live on, but in a yes. new way, in a transformed yes. state. Like the third law of relativity of some sort. This concludes our interview with Marjorie Wallacott. Be sure to tune in next time for our discussion with Ted Peters on transhumanism and transcendence. A special thanks to our partners at the Fetzer Institute. If you'd like to dig deeper into our conversation... Support Hunger for Wholeness on Patreon for additional study materials and content produced by our team at the Center for Christogenesis. I'm Robert Nicastro. Thanks for listening.